Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everyone. Welcome to FYI, which is the For Your Innovation podcast. We're very excited today because we have an amazing, distinguished guest today, which is Dr. Jonathan Wiseman. Just a few good things to say. I mean, we could spend hours talking about Jonathan's accomplishments, but we'll keep it rather brief here and we'll talk about it a little bit more within the podcast. So Dr. Wiseman is really focused on how cells ensure that proteins fold into the correct shape. We'll get into that a lot. Uh, If anyone's listened to our podcast or our brainstorms, they know we talk a lot about AlphaFold and other sort of neural network-based algorithms that can predict protein folding. So a lot to talk about there. You know, Dr. Wiseman also looks at the role of protein misfolding in disease, uh, normal physiology as well, widely recognized for, you know, building these innovative tools, broadly exploring sort of different principles of different biological systems. So we'll get into all of that too. This includes many things. If you don't know what these things are, we'll, we'll dig into that as well. But ribosome profiling, also CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A, which I would love to talk about, something I'm really passionate about. And we have the creator here, so very exciting. And that's going to control the expression of human genes. Dr. Wiseman is also part of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research, a Landon T. Cell Clay professor for biology at MIT. And we could go on and on and on and on and on. So we will have a bio printed here, also numerous awards But let's get right into sort of the heart of the discussion. So first of all, you know, I did a very, very brief, unfair representation of all the amazing things you've done. So maybe can you just tell us a little bit about your background, how you got interested in the field, what brought you to this point? So my background, actually, I was trained in mathematics and physics. And somewhere around my first year in graduate school, I had that sort of road to Damascus moment and decided that um, as fun as it was to study the quantitative sciences that I was much more interested in in biological questions. And what's been really satisfying is over the course of my career is that the sort of computational approaches that were used in things like math and physics became just a a central component of of biomedical research as biology has uh, become an information-rich science. So a big theme in sort of what we tried, what we've tried to do is we we sort of have a, a live in two worlds. We're we're interested in specific biological questions. I'm particularly interested in how does the cell maintain its integrity in an organism, maintain its integrity. Uh, this question of sort of homeostasis, how the, despite a, a harsh world that uh, we live in, that you're able to. Uh, so, cells and people are able to uh, function for the most part uh, with a high degree of of quality and efficiency. Um, And that has led to a number of rich discoveries and and, uh, and, and biological processes. So that's on the one hand where we have these questions that we're interested in, but I'm also very interested in how we ask the questions. So we always hear in that science is about testing hypotheses. So you you uh, have a hypothesis, you try to disprove it, and if you don't, you can't in, disprove it, and you try harder, you start to believe that that hypothesis has some validity. But equally important to me is where do new hypotheses come from? How do we understand what questions to ask? And that, to me, has been a, a real change in how biology is done, and one that uh, CRISPR has had a, a huge impact on. So it's allowed us to go from this sort of follow your nose, qualitative gut sense of like what might be important and what things I should study 
to uh, systematic data-driven principled approaches to understand what are the important uh, biological functions to be testing and generating hypotheses for. That's a really helpful overview. And you said a few things that I'd love to kind of circle back on in a minute. But I think maybe switching gears just slightly right now, I think it'd be helpful if we sort of framed the podcast. So I know we've talked a little bit about this, but I'd love to just, if I could, maybe we can segment the podcast into sort of thirds. So we can talk about, you know, programmable medicines or genetic medicines as sort of the the overarching purpose of this podcast and one that you've contributed greatly to. And one, obviously, if anyone's listened before that I have a specific real strong interest in, uh, it's my coverage universe, but it's also something that I'm really passionate about. And I think from that, you can imagine sort of three branches. One would be sort of the drug, one would be efficient delivery, and the other sort of just basic functional genomics. And so I think how we can start, if, if I may, and that works for you, um, maybe let's spend a little bit of time talking about the drug and drug discovery. So, you know, it, it seems like reading about your incredible work and journey, that you're always trying to develop and research these new therapies. And it sort of goes back to what you said, which is, where do these new hypotheses come from? Um, and how do we generate them and do so in the most most efficient and uh, hopefully efficacious way possible? So one such initiative that you developed with colleagues from UCSF was this technique called CRISPR-I, uh, which can allow you know, researchers to regulate gene expression, but it can also be used for other things like uh, drug discovery. So I think this is an important place to start because obviously when you're talking about drugs, it can't happen without, you know, as you say, generating these hypotheses and also uh, generating these important and potentially life-saving drugs. So I, I think, you know, one thing that we're focused on here at ARC is the idea of CRISPR-I and some of these other tools that we're seeing come out for drug discovery you know, a lot of people that we find, investors, et cetera, um, science aficionados and, and people just kind of trying to learn about the space, I think when they hear CRISPR, they think gene editing and they think drug and they think potential cure. But I don't know if there are so many people who know about its role in drug development. And we've done some work on sort of pricing, et cetera. And if you look at drug development costs, including sort of the cost of failures, the average is about $2 billion, and it takes about 10 years to create a drug. And that's before any commercialization costs. So, you know, we've seen from scientists like yourself estimate that preclinical costs could account for about 40% of costs in clinical development. And so lowering these costs will substantially help uh, with getting to the market cheaper uh, and being able to provide potentially more affordable drugs to patients, which is what we all want. So maybe we can separate these two a little bit further even, and that is... How is CRISPR helpful in the first bucket in disease biology and target identification? And then maybe in the second one, you know, sort of more in the development and, and drug segment, if those work for you. Otherwise, you can bucket it any way you want. That's just how my brain <laughs> came to it. Absolutely. So I maybe restate a little bit of what you said is because uh, to, to help frame it, this idea of programmable medicine and the notion is that we would understand the mechanism of a disease. So for example, that you inherited a mutated protein uh, from your parents and know that the, what we would like to do is to change that, is to correct that mutation, basically bring you back to uh, people who are not going to develop the disease. That's sort of the vision. And the, the beauty of this would be that once you've identified what you want to do, if you, when you've worked out tools like CRISPR and gene editing, gene therapy, you could immediately design the drug. And that may seem like, and that's really the idea of programmable medicine. And that may seem uh, like science fiction, but that's essentially what happened with uh, the mRNA vaccines, vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, right? Once the sequence of the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus was uh, put on the internet, Within something like seven days or something, Moderna had designed the vaccine. And then it was a matter of, of producing it and uh, testing it. And so that, is an, that shows you the promise of being able to shorten with programmable medicines like CRISPR therapies, RNAs, uh, the, the promise of shortening this development time really dramatically. So there's two sides to this. There's what is the programmable drug we're going to use? Is it an RNA as it was in the vaccine? 
or is it going to be CRISPR editing to change the sequence of your DNA or uh, a CRISPR I or CRISPR A to turn on or off uh, a disease causing gene? Uh, so that's, that's one side. And there's been really great progress on this. So we have tools like CRISPR cutting for knocking out genes, but now base editors or prime editors for changing the sequence of DNA or uh, some of the tools that um, my lab is focused more on, so so-called epigenetic editors that let us uh, turn on or off or on or off uh, existing genes. So those are that's sort of the one bucket. What are what are the drugs going to be? But and, and that's really starting to. We we really have very nice tools. Not that we can't do with better ones, but we have we can do a lot with the ones that we have. And maybe later I'll talk about uh, CRISPR off uh, as uh, one of our sort of favorites of this. But the, so those tools are in pretty good shape. We're really limited by delivery, but so which which organs, which tissues we can deliver these tools to. So for the liver, we really are able to to uh, with things like LMP technology, really able to deliver uh, these tools very effectively. Uh, and other tissues are coming on board with uh, with AAVs. We can start to get to the CNS, and um, uh, there, and there's a lot of a lot of activity, a lot of interest in this question of delivery. But then the final and ultimate thing that's going to determine how the impact of programmable medicines is which genes, what changes do we want to make to into what tissue? Do, what, which genes do we want to turn on and off that will modulate a gene or which genes do we want to change that was going to modulate uh, disease? And this is this broad discovery that's sort of the whole edifice of modern molecular biology is try to understand um, what genes, what what genes we can change that will ameliorate disease. And that's where, in, in my view, CRISPR has had an equal impact in, revolu in revolutionizing biology and medicine. And so maybe with that, I'll switch and start talking about, and that's where I was talking about this sort of hypothesis generating systematic principled way of doing, uh, of doing discovery, both basic biological discovery and uh, disease mechanism discovery. Because as you said, if you're talking about spending, you know, billions of dollars and years of, of work to develop a therapy, you want to accelerate that process. But you also want to be really sure that the uh, therapies you're developing are the best ones. Yeah. And I think, you know, the way you framed it, I, I really liked. So, you know, we talked about the Cas9 or the traditional cutting, which I think we've talked a lot about on this podcast. Um, and we've also talked about base and prime editors. And then you mentioned sort of your lab is more focused on the more sort of epigenetic editing and that your favorite is CRISPR off. So I kind of want to circle back to that and maybe for listeners, like give, give sort of like a practical example. So, you know, for example, for Cas9, we obviously know CRISPR Therapeutics and Vertex are partnered on a sickle cell beta thalassemia um, program, which hopefully may get approved soon. Uh, it's with the FDA for review, but but would love to know if you sort of can talk about maybe some practical examples and then also what, what sort of you see as the benefits and maybe some of the drawbacks to some of these tools. For a therapeutic um, and I'll I'll talk in a moment about this application to discovery of what changes we want to make. But now I'm talking directly using CRISPR tools as a therapeutic. Or so the uh, CRISPR cutting, prime editing, base editing. These are editing the genome. They're changing the sequence of the gene of the genes. But we know that there's a critical role for epigenetics so that is controlling the expression of the genes in both normal biology and in disease processes. So every cell in our body has exactly the same DNA. And yet your, your, the, the photoreceptors in your eye are very different than muscle cells or different than uh, T cells and, and B cells, et cetera. And the reason they're different is because of the epigenetics, because of the control of which genes are being expressed and when. And we also know that misregulation of the genes plays a critical role in a wide variety of disease processes. So for some things, for some changes, like if you have a 
mute, uh, stop codon in your cystic fibrosis transmembrane regulator for your CFTR gene, and that's causing cystic fibrosis, what you'd like to do is correct that stop codon through the wild type sequence. And for that, things like base editors or prime editors are really sort of I ideal. But for other things where you have a, a disease, a gene that's contributing to disease, uh, so for example, the one that's very popular now uh, for good reason is uh, PCSK9. It's a, uh, a protein that's expressed uh, predominantly from your liver. And we know that the expression, the normal expression of this disease, of this gene rather, contributes to hyperlipidemia and uh, coronary artery disease. We know that because there are people naturally walking around who have mutated versions of PCSK9 and so are not expressing this protein. And those people have a dramatically lower risk of uh, getting heart disease. So the human genetics has done this experiment for us, identified what change we want to make. And here, something like CRISPR-Off, which is a tool for epigenetic editing where we can permanently silence a gene by without changing its sequence, is, in my view, sort of the ideal uh, route for, um, uh, for uh, silencing that gene. And it's sort of the perfect solution. If you don't want PCSK9 to be expressed, rather than uh, mutating PCSK9 so it's in the damaged form so that uh, for the rest of, uh, and permanently changing your DNA so that you will then express continuously a damaged version of the message and a damaged version of the protein, um, we, can, we can silence that gene and have none of the transcripts being expressed. And this becomes particularly important if you want to do multiplexed silencing of genes. So if you want to turn down uh, multiple genes. Now, the tools that I, with my UCSF colleagues, developed for shutting off genes initially, the so-called CRISPR-I or CRISPR interference, where you could, in a programmable way, uh, bring in Cas9 to uh, shut off a neighboring gene, uh, were very effective um, if you want to study the function of the gene. But they weren't great therapies. And the reason they weren't great therapies is as soon as you stopped expressing your CRISPR-I, your gene would turn back on. And so you solved one problem, which is the expression of your uh, silencing expression of a disease gene. But then you created a second one, which is how do I keep the continued expression of my CRISPR-I? And also uh, what's going to happen when you continuously express this foreign uh, bacterial protein? It really did not seem to me realistic um, therapy. So the beauty of things like CRISPR cutting is it was a once and done. Once you once you cut the gene, it was never going to be functional again. And what CRISPR-Off does is it uses the body's natural mechanisms for epigenetically permanently heritably silencing genes uh, through DNA methylation. And so now we can, in a once and done way, methylate the promoter of a gene. That gene will be turned off and it will remain off uh, as we've shown in, test in, in vitro for months or years, and essentially, uh, we can expect, per, at least in some cases, uh, permanently off. So this gives us a way of shutting down uh, disease genes uh, in a permanent way uh, without um, changing the underlying se DNA sequence, uh, sequence of your genome. I think that's really helpful context, and it kind of um, gives us a roadmap for, for which types of technologies we should look to for which potential indications. Um, and maybe just staying on, on the theme of, of these tools and, and how they become somewhat developed as therapeutics, I'm thinking about also CRISPR is also pretty important for um, when we're looking at a drug or potentially developing a drug, and we want to use things like high-throughput drug screening um, that's a pretty critical step in sort of the whole drug discovery process. So, you know, CRISPR technology can be integrated into that process, which I'm not sure how many people are familiar with. I'm sure all the scientists who may or may not be listening know about this, but um, maybe some of the other people who are just getting into the space, this may be surprising. And one of the things it can do is it can enhance, you know, efficiency. It can also potentially enhance accuracy. So by using CRISPR to create sort of human and maybe animal cell lines, 
what it can propel is it having specific genetic alterations that then, you know, people like you uh, can study the effects of potential drugs on these various disease-relevant cellular models. Um, So this really allows for these more precise evaluation of drug candidates, and it could potentially significantly reduce the number of false positives in the drug screening process. You know, I've I've been reading quite a few papers um, about different people. I I recently read one um, from the College of Life Sciences in China that, that used this method to find uh, a treatment for acute myeloid leukemia. They did a a CRISPR-Cas9 screen, as we call it. So, you know, we at ARC and and scientists and and people we've collaborated with are are really excited about the promise that this can generate. And, you know, I I think we can expect to see a growing number of CRISPR-based therapies entering into the clinic. Um, And then that will help for ultimately reaching to sort of patients that are in need. So I'm just curious, sort of, um, you know, in the spirit of continuing the conversation on sort of this discovery and development piece of using CRISPR, how you sort of have been implementing this in your lab and and sort of how you feel this is an important development. Yeah, so that's, this really brings us to the second uh, major use of CRISPR and discovery, which is try to understand um, what, how our genes, which genes are contributing to either normal biological process or to di- a disease process. And uh, really, the, I think the backdrop for this is uh, over two decades ago, now, we've had the first draft of the human genome, and we knew that there's 20,000 plus or minus different proteins that are uh, different classes of proteins that our body can express. And all, all that we do, all, all, all going from a fertilized egg to uh, an adult person, and all that happens in disease is, is really comes down to uh, which of these proteins are, are expressed. And we've for a while known how to um, measure which expro- proteins have been expressed through different technologies that people might be aware of, like microarrays and, and uh, um, RNA-seq. And the way I, and the analogy I like to say is this, this is like a listening to a composition. You hear the music, you get to, you get to see which notes, which of these 20,000 notes are being expressed and when. And that lets you, uh, you know, understand a lot about how diseases happen, but it's not very satisfying. At some point, you'd like to be able to compose. You'd like to be able to change the notes and change which notes are expressed and when and see which ones are agreeable and which ones are, are disagreeable. And what CRISPR has allowed us to do is to turn off any gene or any or on any gene or any combination of genes. And so now, rather than just looking at which genes are expressed, listening to the music of this expression, we can compose new, new scores and see how that affects uh, different biological processes. I like the the musical analogy. Did you have any musical training, or is that a side hobby? Uh, just as a just as a uh, consumer, and to make that a little more concrete, an area where this is probably most mature is this idea of can- synthetic lethality, especially synthetic lethality in the context of cancer. So we know that cancer is driven by genetic and epigenetic changes, and especially either. Um, oncogenes like K- mutated forms of KRAS that are so common in, in many cancers like uh, pancreatic and lung cancer or loss of tumor suppressor genes. And so the one people may be familiar with would be uh, things like BRCA, the BRCA mutations that you inherit. You can inherit from uh, your parents that make you much more prone uh, to a number of types of cancers like breast cancer and uh, ovarian and pancreatic cancer. Um, so when you lose these tumor suppressor genes, they make cells prone to getting uh, developing tumors, but they also create vulnerabilities. And we want to exploit these vulnerabilities to be able to specifically kill cells that have lost both copies of the BRCA gene and not the ones that haven't. So be able to distinguish between uh, normal and cancer, uh, cancer-causing genes cancer-prone uh, cells, sorry. And the analogy I have is it's a little bit like losing BRCA is a little bit like losing one of the legs of a four-leg chair. The chair is unstable, but it won't fall down. If you, if you then can remove the second leg, now that chair is not going not gonna to stand, or not gonna, is not going to be stable. 
And this is exactly what was done actually before CRISPR, but using the predecessors to CRISPR, is that they found that BRCA was a critical gene in repairing uh, mistakes in your DNA. And that, but the, the reason that cells could live without BRCA is because that there are other mechanisms, other DNA repair mechanisms. And one of them is uh, involves uh, something called PARP. And so it's, it was found that if you made uh, small molecule inhibitors of PARP, so uh, PARP inhibitors, that these were then particularly effective at treating BRCA or BRCA-like uh, tumors, tumors that involved loss of the BRCA gene. And so, and this is now one of the uh, uh, very successful therapies for treating BRCA-like uh, mutant forms of cancer. But this can now be applied to, with CRISPR technology, we can, we can very effectively search for each tumor based on its genetic lesions, which oncogenes it has or which tumor suppressor it's lost. Look for specific vulnerabilities. Look for what is that uh, second leg. Uh, to pull out from underneath it. And so this is done now in a number of different contexts and giving us, you know, really true promise for true precision measure, uh, medicine and tumors. But this model can be now extended to uh, a number of different disease processes. And uh, I can talk about those in a, a second, how we've extended beyond cancer. Yeah, the uh, so just just to note for anyone who doesn't know the predecessors to CRISPR, you meant zinc finger nucleases and tail. Uh, proteins, actually, this right? was RNAi technology. So functional genomics was usually re relied a lot on the RNAi, this sort of being able to screen through many genes and see what their effects are, how they modulated the disease process. RNAi was really the the precursor, and the reason why, from a therapy point of view. Zinc fingers and tails were great. From a functional genomics where you really wanted to change notes at will, they weren't because it was too hard. Every gene you wanted to change, you had to develop a new tool. And so it didn't let us test all 20,000 genes at once. So RNAi did. The problem is it was less effective. It had more off targets and you just got much noisier results. So I want to give you the opportunity. Do you want to maybe highlight um, how we've evolved even beyond cancer? Oh, yeah. So uh, examples are one of the challenges. We've, we, I, I know you've covered uh, CAR-Ts, so immunotherapies, cell-based uh, 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 therapies. One of the challenges uh, with using engineered T-cells against tumors is that T-cells have this period where they're very active, and then they have the built-in mechanism of basically going into an energetic state, of going up, basically uh, no longer being uh, effective as the killer T cells. And that makes a lot of sense because the immune system, when it's overactive or unregulated, leads to can lead to uh, forms of autoimmunity. But this that's great when you're talking about the natural immune system and it stops us from having uh, 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 preventing autoimmunity. But when you're trying to do manufactured T cells, it really limits their efficacy. So one, some of the first uh, CRISPR screens outside of cancer were in T cells to really try to identify uh, targets that when you uh, knock down, prevented these uh, uh, cell-based therapies, the T cells from sort of uh, going into these uh, energetic non-functional states. So I think something that we should also just maybe touch upon, I, I mentioned it briefly in the beginning, but um, would love to get your thoughts a little bit more when talking about drug discovery and, and all of these different tools and drugs. I know you've done a lot of work on protein folding. We've definitely talked about it a lot. Um, we've done several blogs and, and others, and, and we're really fascinated on how sort of these neural network-based algorithms, you know, I think I mentioned AlphaFold. There are others, obviously, like RosettaFold and others. But we think that that could really accelerate drug discovery, and that's really going to be helped by this prediction of the protein folding. So, you know, would love to hear a little bit more about why you see this as an important issue and, and a little bit more about sort of the solutions that you've potentially come up with. So AlphaFold, first of all, in, in the various forms, like other forms like ESM Fold and the new flavors that are coming out are really transforming 
uh, biology, accelerating it uh, dramatically. But what they rely on is the fact that the sequence of, an, of amino acids, the sequence of a protein, determines its structure. The, so that's, in theory, it does. In practice, in a cell, proteins often misfold. And they misfold, they, they, form, they form aggregates, and they, these aggregates can be, in some cases, highly toxic. So we now know a common theme in many neurodegenerative diseases is uh, protein is that you get protein aggregates or protein misfolding. So, uh, and it's a different flavor of protein depending on the disease. So, in Huntington's, it's the Huntington proteins, and Alzheimer's, it's uh, 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 a beta peptide or tau. In Parkinson's, it seems to involve a protein called alpha synuclein. But it's this common theme that uh, you end up getting proteins which are never make it to their native state and instead sort of aggregate like a, a scrambled egg. And in some cases, it's even worse that these aggregates can propagate or grow. So once you have a cell that has it, it can actually spread in the cell and maybe even spread between cells. So we're, so we're, we're, our interest has been on the machinery that allows proteins in this complex environment in the cell to reach their native state, the states predicted by AlphaFold. Great. Yeah. And, and one of the things, obviously, that we've seen as, as maybe a, not a criticism, but one of the limitations that we've seen, you know, with some of these algorithms is, you know, the protein to protein to interactions maybe are difficult to predict and also just sort of the, the environment. So, you know, the environment obviously changes uh, within the body. And so those have been challenges and limitations that we've seen. So perhaps there's there's more room for your work to to kind of grow there and as I think well. there's clearly going to be a role for these AI approaches for an understanding not just the final state but the multiplicity of states a protein can go into and how it can breathe within this types of breathing that can uh, that can promote um, aggregation and misfunction and lead to disease so I I'm very up uh, the first it, it was you know uh, extraordinary that they were able to largely solve the protein folding problem and get us to uh, predict the fold of the protein. But I think the next one, major next frontiers is to solve the protein misfolding protein problem, understand uh, when this process, uh, uh, when and where this process is most likely to fail. And I think that could have direct implications for treating diseases like uh, neurodegenerative diseases that involve uh, protein misfolding, because if we understood how this process went wrong, we could then start to uh, design small molecules to prevent that. And this is not so hypothetical. There's um, there are actually the major drugs for cystic fibrosis, a major class of them developed by Vertex, are in fact uh, preventing the mutant forms of CFTR from misfolding, or uh, for transthyrotin TTR, uh, a, a protein that uh, accumulates these so-called amyloid aggregates. Um, my uh, friend, colleague Jeff Kelly, developed a small molecule that prevents this misfolding. That's a, a very uh, successful and therapeutically important treatment uh, for these uh, types of misfolding diseases. Definitely, um, I think it may be time. I mean, I think we've spent a long time talking about sort of the drug discovery piece and and how CRISPR is really being used both in drug discovery, but also, um, you know, as, as a drug, as a therapy itself. Um, but I think it may be helpful now if we shift gears a little bit and go on to sort of our delivery uh, process. And I think, you know, if if we have a, a good and, and potential therapeutic, if we can't get it to the proper tissue or organ, uh, it is less helpful. So I, I know you touched a little bit on this before um, when we were talking about the different uh, CRISPR applications, but maybe it would be helpful just to touch upon the different types of deliveries that we have and, and, and maybe where they can go within the body and, and sort of where you see the future kind of going in that vertical. What? The excitement to me about the sort of functional genomics, this ability to change the expression of uh, genes, one every gene and every in combination of gene, and to understand how it impacts a disease process, whether it's killing of a cancer or keeping a CAR T functional or ameliorating the effects of a genetic disease, is that we use CRISPR as a tool to discover what changes impact a disease process. 
And then we can immediately switch gears and turn that tool, that discovery tool into the therapy, into the therapy itself. Because we, we, with CRISPR, we can test all the different possibilities of genes to change and which ones are best at impacting a disease and then implement those changes as a therapy, whether it's through base editing or prime editing or things like uh, CRISPR off uh, to uh, make those changes. The key thing, the key missing thing, though, is we have to be able to deliver these uh, gene editing tools or these epigenome editing tools to the right cell and to do it effectively. So in the liver, lipid nanoparticle LMP technology is incredibly effective. We can really, realistically, in an adult and probably even with redosing, uh, hit every uh, one of the major cell types, the hepatocytes in your liver. And that means as soon as we um, have a change that we want to make, so if, for example, you have uh, uh, mutations in the gene that causes uh, phenylketonuria or PKU, you would then be able, if you have the editor, you design an editor that can edit uh, cells uh, in vitro in the test tube and then deliver it through LMPs uh, to the liver uh, to make that correction. So we've really sort of come full circle on this idea of programmable medicines. So being able to accelerate the discovery and the development from years to potentially months or even weeks. But that's the liver's really at the moment unique in our ability to deliver. So a big limitation now is how do we get to other organs and other tissues? And here um, it's we need a, a delivery vehicle. So people are developing new LMPs that are targeted more effectively to different tissue. So try, so uh, I, um, just to you know, sort of give you a sense of how important, uh, how much of a change that could make. We have CRISPR therapies, some of the first CRISPR therapies were to treat sickle cell trait, right? We've known it was actually the first gene where we understood what a mutation, how mutation led to a disease. We uh, understood that mutations in hemoglobin, the hemoglobin gene uh, caused uh, sickle cell anemia that caused people to inherit sickle cell anemia. Uh, we can develop editors that allow us to get around these mutations or to correct those mutations. And then, but the way we have to do it as a therapy is to give a patient essentially a bone marrow transplant. So you take out their uh, so-called hematopoietic stem cells, it's the stem cells that we can populate your, your blood system, edit them in, a, in vitro in the test tube, create a niche so that we can now transplant them back to the patient. And so replace uh, the existing HSCs with the edited HSCs that will then go on to perform to produce a, a normal variant of the of the hemoglobin, and that can cure people, and it has, and, and it's it's remarkable, it's a miracle, but it's a very expensive and very um, debilitating process. So this process of getting a, a bone marrow transplant can itself uh, cause a lot of morbidity, even mortality. Um, so you would love to instead of having to take out your bone marrow and essentially um, replace it and, and, and go through this long, expensive process. If we could edit our HSCs inside, if we had, for example, an LMP, uh, like this, the ones that you use for uh, the mRNA vaccines, that could, instead of uh, going in that case, the muscle went to the HSCs and edited them. Now you would have a therapy that you could uh, administer uh, very broadly, including uh, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, where uh, uh, sickle cell trait is most common. So that's the, that's a very discrete technical engineering challenge, and it's a hard one. But whenever you have these sorts of engineering challenges, I'm much more optimistic uh, that we'll make ra uh, rapid progress because you know exactly what you're supposed to do, what you have to do. It's a very well-defined uh, technical problem, as opposed to sort of the conceptual problems of like, how do we, you know, how do we 
uh, treat cancer, we had to first understand what cancer was. And that it took, we had a war on cancer and from uh, Nixon in the early 70s, and it took decades and decades to have that impact to how we treat the disease because we didn't know what cancer was or what changes we want to make. So all of this is a long-winded way of saying the delivery problem is a hard one, but a, a, a wonderful engineering problem uh, where there's a lot of uh, create a lot of different approaches. And we didn't even talk about the preconditioning regimen for sickle cell. So there's so many benefits, uh, you know, to to be accrued there. So uh, yeah, that would be a fantastic initiative. And I, I know there are a lot of labs. Uh, really focused on delivery. So, you know, I think there's been some interesting papers uh, this year. You know, I was very interested in in EVLP specifically, but um, I think there, yeah, I don't know if you want to say a few words on EVLPs or. So I'll talk about that. So there's the LMP technology, which now has been demonstrated that can be done at enormous scale. It went from a Hypothetical had been done to a very had been very few people had treated to to something that's been a, you know a billion people or more have received more than a billion that have received uh, LMP vaccines. So that's a that is sort of a gold standard. But I don't think it's going to be the best solution for all tissues and and all uh, deliveries. So the other approach has been to use uh, viruses because viruses are naturally good. They're basically Vehicles for live for delivering DNA and RNA to our cells, and they've uh, they're, they're very good at it. that's how they make their living. So a, a favorite is adeno associated virus or AAV, and there's different flavors of these uh, that and these have been used natural ones and then engineered ones that are better at, for example, delivering to the central nervous system or to different uh, tissues. And that that um, AAV is that that's a real therapy. There there. Um, a number of therapies based on AAV, uh, some uh, quite successful. And so, for example, for um, delivering to the central nervous system, uh, there's been a lot of work and a lot of success in AAVs. The other approach, though, has been to take the best of what viruses do, um, which is deliver uh, either proteins or RNAs to cells, uh, but to do this in a truly engineered way, so either use natural viral-like particles or uh, variants of viral-like particles that don't actually aren't capable of replicating or aren't, aren't viruses on their own, but you can manufacture and use them as a delivery approach. So there's a, a number of different uh, strategies out there that I think are are quite exciting. Definitely. It's definitely a field that will continue to evolve. Um, and, and the idea of going to more tissues is, is the most important um, and giving really what patients need. But, you know, because this is ARC and, you know, our focus is on disruptive innovation, I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts on, you know, we talked a lot about drug discovery and about, you know, creating better and more efficacious therapies. So, my thought is like, how can we further reduce time to market for new therapies and and get even better technologies? Do you think, you know, we need better sequencing technology? Is it a matter of you know better neural network algorithms? Is is it you know we need to be able to create better predictions for more viable drugs? You know, we've talked about through our research that looking at AI CRISPR and next generation sequencing, we could improve the time to market and trial phase reductions by about twenty five percent each. Um, with these new technological advances. So I'd just love to hear from you, like what what will get us to better, faster, you know, to the market with with cheaper uh, and better therapies? Do, do you have sort of a sense or is it kind of all of the things that we've just talked about? So um, ultimately we we have to speed up the efficiency of clinical trials. And I, I have some, I can talk, it's not my, um, my area of my research at all, but I have some thoughts on that. Um, but I think it is sort of all of the above. And I also think that machine learning uh, has a potential of impacting all of these as it's such a it's such a broad and ubiquitous tool. It's, a, it's actually sort of an umbrella term for uh, very rather different algorithms and different approaches. So the key thing is 
is you want to understand what changes you need to make. The biggest failure of drugs in, and the expensive one in late stage is on efficacy. That is, you succeeded in making a change, uh, turning off a gene, uh, preventing a data aggregation in the brain, and you you make the you make a therapy that does this. You make the drug. You give it try it in people, and it either causes some toxicity that we didn't anticipate, or it just doesn't treat the the the, the disease as you had hoped. And these kind of late stage failures are enormously expensive and sort of also heartbreaking because you can do you know you can do a hundred things right, and if your hypothesis that you started with was not was wrong with your hypothesis that if I do X to the body, if I make turn on this protein or change this protein, um, that it's gonna it's gonna ameliorate the disease. If that hypothesis was wrong, then all the work and all the years you poured into it are, are uh, for naught. So increasing understanding better what changes are gonna impact a disease process is going to be central. Uh, to making better therapies. And here, I think a combination of the uh, CRISPR type tools that let us make these changes either in cells or increasingly uh, in animal models and uh, mice, but even in uh, more sophisticated models like non human primates, to be able to make these changes and to test many, many possibilities so that we get to choose the one that is truly most promising, not just the one that you have is an important part. The second part of the equation, so that lets you make changes and see which ones impact the disease and to do this on scale. So it, 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 it gets back to this generating hypotheses as I talked about. The second aspect of this is to use the natural experiment of human genetics. And in the end, it's the human uh, drug targets that are validated by human genetics are uh, have an enormous advantage over ones that are just based on uh, work we do in, in a dish or in an animal model. And so I talked about PCSK9 and because it's such a paradigm. Here, you knew people had mutations, naturally occurring mutations in uh, PCSK9 that either got rid of half or all of the function, that those people, not only were they healthy, not only did they not develop a disease because of missing this protein, but they lived longer. They had, didn't have heart attacks. So you're really confident that this was both a safe and efficacious target. So this combination of testing and new generating hypotheses with um, things like CRISPR and functional genomics on the one hand, and then going into human genetics to see whether those are, uh, whether uh, how those impact human health and lifespan is a a, a powerful approach for uh, for understanding which changes we want to make to affect a disease. Then, when you validated those, the programmable medicine uh, could be a, a terrific way forward. But even if you don't, if it's a tissue you can't get to, for example, by delivery, then you can try to replicate that with small molecules. Or drugs or with antibodies. So it's this discovery of functional genomics plus human genetics to validate targets is modality independent. Um, it's, of course, most elegant when you can use the same tool, the same CRISPR tool that discovered what therapy you should, what changes you should make as the therapy itself. And I think increasingly that's going to be the case. But for the time being, there's going to be an important role. Uh, for other modalities, small molecules and, and uh, protein drugs. Yeah, I think that's all all really good context. And that, you know, in addition to being such a prolific researcher, you're also really involved in sort of the science outreach and the education. So, you know, I guess from your perspective, what do you think is really important for younger scientists to engage with um, the public and and what are some of the challenges involved in doing so? And maybe sort of just if you could speak a little bit about your outreach and maybe any advice you'd want to give to young scientists as well. So the advice to young scientists a career now, I think that it's a wonderful time to go into biology. And actually, this is what I would say 
also as outreach. It's that it's an incredibly exciting time. Our understanding, a fundamental understanding of biology, of who we are, are and where we came from, is changing dramatically after a long time of sort of getting better tools. We, I think, we really have sort of a tipping point where we are our ability to understand human biology and to impact it rapidly is changing. And I think that, you know, one thing that I think doesn't get enough, it's almost taken for granted. Is like, what a, what a remarkable uh, miracle was that we could get mRNA vaccines so quickly. And, what, and uh, a couple of decades before that, how we were able to identify HIV um, and make the blood supply safe. And then within the, another decade, develop therapies that turned into chronic disease. And where did these come from? They came from a lot of basic research, a lot of understanding. If we had not had all this understanding in RNA biology, which seemed like to the outside world, probably the most esoteric thing or things like LMP technology, if that had not already been in place, we would not have had, we couldn't, it, we would not have had a vaccine in anywhere near the same time. So you you uh, you have to do this basic research ahead of time so that you're prepared uh, for the next pandemic or the next uh, disease process. That's incredible. So I think, unfortunately, our, our time is up. So I just want to thank you so much for joining the podcast today. Um, I've certainly learned a lot, and I know that everyone on the, the listening end will We'll really appreciate the comments and, and sort of all of the contributions as well. So, so thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for uh, having this conversation. Uh, was, we really enjoyed it. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.